So the scriptures from Romans 8, 28 to 30, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Well, this morning, we're looking at one of the greatest promises in the entire Bible. It's right there in verse 28. In all things, God works for the good. And if we're going to understand that rightly, there are four things that I want to show you from this passage today. First, we need to understand this promise. Second, we need to be able to define what is the good. Third, how we can know this promise is true. And fourth, what it'll mean in your life. So understand the promise, define the good, how we know, and what it means. Let's take a look. First, let's try to understand this promise. Now again, verse 28 is one of the most well-known and most loved promises in all the Bible. It's brought comfort to a lot of people. And as we said a few weeks ago when we began our series here in Romans 8, we said the Apostle Paul is trying to comfort people. The letter of Romans is a letter to Christians who are trying to follow Jesus in their city, and it's hard to follow Jesus in the city. There's temptation, and there's persecution, and so Pastor Paul is trying to comfort the church, and yet, this verse is meant to be a comfort, but it will only be a false comfort and will actually lead to pain and spiritual confusion if you don't understand it rightly. Many people, when they read Romans 8.28, what they think it means is something like, behind every cloud, there's a rainbow. Or when God closes a door, he opens a window. And let me tell you, friends, and you need to hear this, that's not what Romans 8.28 is saying. This promise is not saying that if you have a bad life circumstance, it's going to be okay because a good life circumstance is gonna come out of it. That's not what this promise is teaching. And if you think it is, you're only gonna find yourself experiencing spiritual confusion and pain. So for example, sometimes people might think in the church or people who have been exposed to these kinds of ideas, they might think something like, oh no, so-and-so broke up with me, but that's okay because someone better is coming along. Now that might be true, and if that's your story, I hope it's true for you. But that's not what Romans 8.28 says. If you are really hoping to get into a grad school program or maybe get that promotion in your job and you don't, you're like, it's okay because God's going to give me something even better, a better grad school program, a better promotion. That might happen. But that's not the promise of Romans 8.28. This promise is not if you go through something bad, God's going to bring something good in a life circumstance out of it. You all know that life is hard, and sometimes it's hard in inexplicable ways. And this passage is not saying that God replaces bad circumstances with good ones. It's a promise that's much deeper than that, much stronger than that. So let me show you six things, just from verse 28, to help us understand what this promise is really about 
that it might actually be a real comfort to us in our spiritual life. So six things. We'll do this pretty fast, but let me show you. First, the passage says, in all things, God works. God and God alone is the one who's working in all things for good. It's not up to you to arrange the circumstances of your life for good. And it's not even as if the circumstances of your life somehow just magically unfold for good. This is only activity that God is capable of achieving. Second thing, the passage says, in all things, God works for good. We mentioned this last week, but I just want to say it again. All things means all things. To be a Christian is to experience all the kinds of things that any other person living in this world experiences. Being a Christian doesn't exempt you from suffering. You're going to experience, if you're a follower of Jesus, all things. You're going to have incredible highs and incredible lows. You're going to have moments of tremendous success and moments of real failure. You're going to have great victories and big-time losses. It's all going to happen to you because all things means all things. And we need to say that because sometimes people think, I'm following Jesus now. My life's supposed to get better. It's supposed to be easier, but it's not. And so you can expect all things to unfold in your life because we live in this world that's broken. Third thing to see from this passage, not only is God working in all things, but third thing to say, in all things, God works for the good. And that does not mean that all things that happen are good. Sometimes things happen that are really bad. Truly bad, horrible, and that's all that can be said about them. Christianity is not positivist thinking. Christianity is not a message of, hey, if there's some evil out there, if there's something bad, you just need to find the good in it. It's not the message of the Bible. The Bible's actually given us a vocabulary to say there is real evil and darkness and pain in the world. And we need to be able to call evil, evil. And so this verse is not saying, if something bad happens to you, just try to stay positive, just try to stay hopeful, find some good in it. When Jesus stood before the tomb of his friend, who, by the way, he knew he was about to raise from the dead, and Jesus sees people weeping and grieving, he doesn't say, stop those tears. I'm here. Everything's going to be fine. This is a display of my power. No, when Jesus stands in the presence of death, which is evil, which is meant to cause grief, he himself weeps. But it isn't like he sheds a tear. The Greek word for weeps is inner convulsion. He is furious at a world in which death is present. And while he's come to heal it, he's also able to grieve in the midst of it. And we need to be able to say that some things that happen are just bad. And that's why Christians can weep with those who weep. They can truly grieve and be angry at injustice and remain hopeful. Fourth thing that this passage tells us, there is no timeline attached to the promise. The passage doesn't say, in all things, God works for the good three weeks after the bad thing happens, or three months, or three years. There is no timeline. And for many people, you won't, on this side of eternity, fully see or experience how God works something for the good. There is no timeline attached to the promise. Fifth thing to mention, the promise is made to a specific group of people. Look again at verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. 
Those two phrases, those who love him and have been called, that's just Paul's way of talking about people who are Christians. People who have been brought into God's family. This is not an indiscriminate promise that God makes to anyone everywhere, but he says, this is a promise for my people. This is a promise for my children. In all things, I will work for their good. And that leads us sixthly, if we're trying to understand this promise rightly, to understand what is probably the most important thing about it, namely, what does Paul mean by good? In all things, God works for the good. But what does he mean by good? Because we've already said, if you misunderstand what good means, this promise is actually going to give you false comfort and it's going to lead to spiritual confusion. Because you're going to think good means I get what I want. Or life circumstances unfold the way that I hope. This promise can only be a comfort if we really understand what Paul means by good. And he tells us. Look at verse 29. For... Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That little word for at the beginning of verse 29, that's the connector. Paul says, in all things, God's working for the good. You say, what's the good? For, verse 29 tells us. And here it is in a nutshell. The good in your life is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Paul says, No matter what happens, no matter what you face, the incredible highs and the incredible lows, the profound joys and the deepest sorrows, when your life goes exactly the way you hoped and when it doesn't, when things that you want to have happen happen and things that you never wanted to have happen happen, in all of it, in the ordinary days and in the days that are profoundly extraordinary. In every moment, in every day, God is working for the good of his people. And he defines good as making you look more like Jesus. And that's his great purpose. That's what Jesus, that's what God himself is doing in this moment for you right now, no matter what you're facing, it's his promise to you. And nothing can get in the way of him doing that. When it says all things, it literally means all things. He's working to make you more like Jesus. Now, that begs a question. Because some of you, and I don't, you might laugh when I say this, but it's actually not meant to be funny. Some of you are saying, okay, Bishan, I hear what you're saying. In all things, God works for the good. Which you're defining, according to Paul, as making me look more like Jesus. But I would rather have a spouse than look more like Jesus. Right? So the question that we really have to wrestle with, like it's nice to look more like Jesus, but I need that promotion or I need that relationship fixed. So what good is it if God's making it look like Jesus when I don't have these things that I so desperately want and need? So we have to spend a few minutes on asking the question, why is it that being formed into the image of Jesus is the most ultimate good that you could ever experience? Like, why is that better than any life circumstance that you might hope for? There's a lot that I could say. I just want to say one thing today to try to show you why being formed in the image of Jesus is your ultimate good. Here's the one thing I want to say today. To be conformed into Jesus' image, to look like him, is to be a person who's formed in love. It's to be a person who's formed in love. Jesus was the most loved 
and most loving human being that has ever walked on planet Earth. And if you were formed into his image, you become a person who grows in their ability to be loved or to experience love and to show love. And I think at the end of the day, if we're really honest, nothing is more important than that. Everything in life that we're trying to achieve or pursue or accomplish is to both feel loved and to show love and to have love go on forever. And Paul says, God's great purpose in everything is to make you look like Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of love. So let's just unpack this idea for a minute. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the most loved person who's ever lived? When you read the gospels, one of the things that stands out to me whenever I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, is how remarkably confident in his identity he is. Jesus is never afraid to show off his power, but he never needs to show off. Jesus is always calm. You never, ever find Jesus saying, oh my gosh, I'm late, I gotta run, bye. He's always calm. Jesus is able to be gracious with people who thought they were going to be judged And he was judgmental of people who were so confident in their self-righteousness. They were proud and smug. Jesus, (laughs) there's nobody like him. There is no one who was the most balanced, put together, altogether lovely human being to ever live. And the question is, how was he able to live like that? And the answer is because he knew that he was infinitely loved by God, his father. When Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water and God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son and in him I'm well pleased. Jesus knew in the core, the very depth of his being, the profound affirmation, the profound love of God his Father. And he was so loved that he was able to move out into the world with complete confidence and security in his identity, never needing to prove himself, never needing to be defensive, able to speak truth and love, even if it offended people. He was the perfect person because he was perfectly loved. And if you're growing into the image of Jesus, if God is using anything and everything you face to make you look more like Jesus, if every joy and every sorrow, every hardship, every opportunity is shaping you, molding you, polishing you into the image of Jesus, you're becoming a person who knows that they're loved infinitely loved by God himself. And that is gonna produce humility and boldness, truth and love, joy and sorrow. You're gonna be confident and secure in your identity. What is more important than that? But not just a person who knows that they're loved, but Jesus is also the most loving person that the world has ever seen. No one was more loving than Jesus. One John puts it this way, God is love, and this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hear what John is saying. God doesn't just show love, he is love. He's the ultimate embodiment or demonstration. Love is not a thing God does, it's, it's, it's his essence. 
and God becomes a person in Jesus Christ, which means love takes on, like love itself becomes a human being. And so if you want to see what love looks like in action, John says, look at Jesus. And if you want to see the most ultimate demonstration of love, look at the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus lays down his life for the good of people, others. And John says that's the ultimate demonstration of the purest form of love is self-sacrifice. It's love for the sake of another. It's giving yourself over for someone else's good. And John's saying Jesus is the most loving person who's ever lived because he made the ultimate sacrifice. And if you're being conformed into the image of Jesus, do you know what happens? You become a more loving person. Do you realize how many, how much relational pain we go through, you've experienced from others and you've caused yourself because of your inability to love? I mean, I certainly know it. Pain that I've experienced, pain that I've caused because I had to put self ahead of another person. And Paul's saying, if you're God's child, he's taking everything that's happening in your life and he's fashioning you, shaping you to the image of Jesus so that you become a person who loves, who can live in such a way that you're putting the good of the other ahead of yourself. So much more we could say about what it means to look like Jesus, but to be loved and to show love, that's what we want more than anything. And Paul says that's happening. God's doing it. He's accomplishing it right now in your life. But you say, well, how do I know? Because when I look at the circumstances of my life, that doesn't feel true. I don't feel like I'm being made into the image of Jesus. But look at verse 28. Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good. How did Paul know that? And in fact, if you look at Paul's life, his life was filled with suffering. We're gonna talk a lot about this next week. Paul's life was super hard. So how was it that Paul was able to say, we know that no matter what, God's working for good. He's making us more like Jesus because when Paul looked at his own life, there was suffering upon suffering upon hardship upon difficulty. It didn't look good. So why is Paul able to say, we know? The only possible answer is because he's already seen God do it. The only way Paul could know is because he recognized that there was a moment in history where God took something that was truly awful and he worked in it to bring out good. But not just good for one person, good for the whole world. Ultimate healing. You see, Paul says we know because he's remembering the death of Jesus on the cross. Paul's thinking about Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute in the place of his people. And he says, of course, in all things, God can work for good because he did it on the cross. So think about it this way. Jesus and his closest friends on the night before Jesus was to die, he was talking to them, he was teaching them. And he says, you guys are about to experience profound sorrow. And of course they would. Because Jesus, they were thinking he's the Messiah. He's our king. He's our healer. He's going to fix and save everything. He's going to make the whole world healed. Everything sad's going to come untrue. And then, less than 24 hours later, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And he's dying. And you may know, the cross was a particularly painful way to die physically. But that wasn't the worst part of the cross. It was a symbol of profound shame. One Roman historian, Cicero, writing about the cross says, 
We don't even use the word cross in civil, polite conversation. It's so scandalous, it's so shameful, it's so embarrassing that the very word cross should not even be uttered by a good Roman citizen. And so Jesus' own friends are watching him die this profoundly shameful, agony-filled death. And they must have thought, that's the end of the story. They must have felt embarrassed. They must have been afraid. They must have thought, what were we hoping for? They must have been so discouraged. They would have rightly concluded, this is bad. This is not a good thing. And yet, what did God do? In all things, God worked for the good. And through Jesus' death on the cross, not only is death defeated and the evil one conquered, but sin is forgiven, the kingdom is promised, the world is gonna be healed and everything sad is gonna come untrue because of what Jesus did on the cross that day. And that's why Paul the apostle, who was a Roman citizen, eventually says, I'm not gonna boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's a profound thing for someone in the first century to say, the cross is now the center of my identity. So what are we seeing? Paul says, I know that no matter what I face, no matter what I go through, God can work for good. He can make me look more like Jesus because in the profound pain and suffering, he's able to bring life out of death because he did it with Jesus on the cross. That's why Paul can say, we know. And you will know that to the degree that you see Jesus on the cross. If you see Jesus dying for you, not just as an abstract historical idea, but as your personal reality. If you see Jesus sacrificing himself so that you could be brought into God's family, you will have the courage and the confidence to say, I know that in all things, in this thing today, right now, in this moment, God is able to work for good to make me more like Jesus. And you know what this will produce in your life? We're gonna close here. But if you're a person who knows this, not just as an idea, many of you know this as an idea, you probably memorized Romans 8.28, but if you believe this in your core, if this becomes a North Star and orienting principle for your life, do you know what happens? You become a person who has peaceful and steady joy because you have a joy that's not dependent on any circumstance. But it's a joy that says, no matter what I face, God can do for me my ultimate good, which is to make me look more like Jesus. And he's doing it. In 1720, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor of a very small church in New York City. It was his first sermon ever. As a preacher, I'm embarrassed that this was his first sermon. <laughs> but in his very first sermon ever, titled A Christian's Happiness, Jonathan Edwards said, why is it that a Christian can be happy? What is the foundation for Christian happiness? Because the world's really hard. How do you stay happy in the midst of a world that's so tough? And in Edward's sermon, he says, here's how. A Christian is someone who knows their bad things will turn out for good. Their good things can never be taken away. And the best things are yet to come. That's just a summary of Romans 8.28. Your bad things are gonna turn out for good. Your good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. If you believe that, I don't mean if you know it in your head, but if you feel that in your core, you're gonna have peaceful, steady joy no matter what you face. And you can, because we know God does this because he did it in Jesus on the cross. So let's pray. Let's look to the cross and let's respond to a God who offers this to us today.
Our God, thank you for meeting us with this profound promise. And now as we come into a time of response, please help us to be a people who know this truth, not as an idea, but as an experience, who know that you are able to work in whatever we're facing in this moment for good, to mold us and to shape us into the image of Jesus, to make us look more like him. And therefore to rest, to have peaceful joy, because nothing could take that away from us, that you're making us into a community of love. So right now, as we enter into this time of response, God, we pray for you to keep us focused, to help us surrender, to accomplish your purposes in and through us. 